You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. So we are starting Advent, as we just experienced, and I have this precarious candle that I am almost sure will fall by the end of this service, um, especially depending on how long we go this morning. But uh, So we are here, and today, of course, marks the first Sunday of Advent, and so over the next four weeks, um, we will be looking at these themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, and how they apply to us as followers of Jesus in 2023. And we're following in the tradition of those who have gone before us for hundreds of years, um, uh, reviewing, looking at this at this time of year, and churches all around the world today doing the same thing as us. So we are part of this beautiful collection of humanity that worships Jesus, and we're all looking at this theme of hope today, which is kind of cool. And so Advent, as many of you know, literally, what does Advent mean? Let's have a guess. Oh, never mind. It's there. (laughs) Advent means coming or arrival, and it refers, of course, to the birth of Jesus in the first Advent, but it also refers to the second coming of Jesus when he makes all things right um, and all the world is reconciled to him. And so in the meantime, uh, all of creation groans, as Paul says in Romans 8. And so we're in this sort of in-between period. The book of Isaiah, written about 730 years before Jesus comes on the scene in the form of a baby in a stable, Uh, is often looked to during Advent because of its foretelling of this coming Messiah. In fact, uh, many have actually nicknamed Isaiah the fifth gospel because there's all these prophecies that speak of this coming Messiah. And uh, one thing that that I know for sure I have done over the years, and I'm sure many of you have as well, is that when we look at Isaiah, we often overlook the fact that Isaiah wasn't primarily speaking of the Messiah to come. That there was uh, more immediate circumstances that concerned Isaiah and his uh, audience at the time. Uh, There was this impending threat to the people of Judah. And so Isaiah is actually writing to King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, and the northern tribe, uh, or the uh, northern uh, Israel had formed a relationship, a connection with Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and there was this sort of uh, constant threat at the doors of Judah, that, uh, the doors of Jerusalem, that they would be sieged and overtaken. And that is who Isaiah, that is what Isaiah is really writing about. That's what he's prophesying about in the book of Isaiah and throughout. And then there's also the, uh, in, I think it's 586 uh, BC, when Assyria takes the people of Judah into captivity. And so there's these themes that are also being worked out through the book of Isaiah as well. And so there are, are, there's a sort of more immediate focus for his audience. And then Jesus comes along and shows that there is this sort of deeper and wider and more expansive application to these prophetic words um, that are applicable not just to the people of Judah the southern kingdom, but are applicable to all of us as a humanity. And he, Jesus demonstrates in the Gospels that throughout, uh, that though the prophecies had this original purpose, he himself 
is the full culmination of Isaiah's words. And so this morning, I'd like to take a look at just a few passages in the book of Isaiah, reference maybe a little bit about what they were originally looking at, and then talk about how they uh, found their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus and what that means for us today and the hope that we are called to hold. And so we'll begin Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 3. Can we go back to this uh, slide, Joseph? Uh oh. Yes. Can everyone see that? So it says this In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It would be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. And as we continue in this passage, it says in verse 4, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And just one other passage, we'll skip a few chapters to chapter 11, and it says this, But with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the meek of the earth. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. These are three different oracles in Isaiah, and they each paint a picture of hope both for those immediate recipients of Isaiah, concerned with invasions from their neighbors to the north, as I said, but even more so for those like us who have had the benefit of reading these ancient texts through the lens of the Messiah, through the lens of Jesus. And we can read back and like, ah, I see. There is this ultimate fulfillment in Jesus himself. This first passage speaks of nations in search of wisdom streaming up to the Lord, the mountain of the Lord. The second one speaks of warriors beating their weapons into garden tools. And the third one speaks of predator and prey hanging out together peacefully. Steve Bell, the singer-songwriter, not Steve Bill, the guy standing in front of you, um, made some observations from these passages that I found particularly insightful. Um, He says regarding the first passage, now there's a few long quotes here today, so buckle up. Um, But this is what he says. As a rule, things don't stream toward a mountain, they stream away. This oracle, this passage, speaks of a radical reversal of nature. Not only nature out there, but our inner logic as well. Consider humanity's reasonable fears and needs for security and order. Then, consider the counterintuitive gospel, the good news, account of the long-awaited Messiah who enters history as a vulnerable child under morally dubious circumstances. Shortly after his birth, he had to flee for his life as a political refugee. And after 33 years, he was able to muster only a handful of followers who quickly abandoned him when things got rough. Eventually, he suffers a terrible and humiliating humiliating death at the order of a brutal tyrant. And notice I emphasize the E in Steve Bell, because often you'll see Steve Bell quotes up here as well, and I don't want to get those confused. This is Steve Bell. But so Steve's saying that in the same way that streams don't flow uphill toward a mountain, 
so too is this gospel way of living shown in Jesus a radical reversal of our natural tendencies and our inclinations. That this is not the thing we should be pursuing. It doesn't fit with our assumptions of survival, of thriving. And yet this is what the Messiah does. And then he invites us to do the same. And the second passage, he says this. Um, again, this being the passage about turning our weapons into pruning hooks and garden tools. He says, this aspiration is all well and good, except that throughout history, the world's largest economies are almost always based on the assumption of war and the opportunities for wealth created through its engagement. It's hard to imagine that the radical shift in worldview necessary for the abandonment of arms could ever gain much traction in a fallen world. Even among Christians, we're too invested in fallenness to take redemptive witness seriously. Sure, we might envision how beautiful it would be for us all to lay down our weapons or for us to convert our weapons into you know, practical tools that can uh, foster growth. But to ask us to get on board with that in the here and now, in the midst of the reality we see every day on our news, uh, the world around us to say, hey, lay down your weapons, lay down your defenses for that. That you either have to be naive or just plain stupid to think that that would work. Because we don't do that in this world. We have been conditioned as a humanity to take up whatever arms, whether it's swords or guns, to defend, to show that might is right. And whoever's got the biggest guns, who's ever got the biggest bombs, get to dictate morality for society. Get to dictate what's right and what's wrong. And that's the way we've been conditioned to think. So this idea of garden tools being formed out of weapons sounds so audacious, so outside of our realm of possibility. And then he says this about the third one. Sorry. And then finally, the idea of the wolf and the lamb. This is what we expect, right? We expect this. When we go to nature, we see predators attacking prey. But Isaiah says, actually, it's going to be more like this. These are hard to see, but you can gather. Nature does not reflect this in any way, but then neither do we. How rare is it to see enemies, mortal enemies, coming together? You know, we think of Ukrainians and Russians. Like, how is peace going to find a way there? We think of the conflict in um, Israel and Palestine right now between the Palestinians and Israelites. Or, we don't even have to go globally Think of estranged families you know, maybe your own. Fathers and sons, brothers, broken homes, broken relationships with no hope of reconciliation in sight. Talking about wolves and lambs, try brothers with one another. Try fathers, sons, try Friends who haven't ch chatted or spoken in years because of something that one person did to the other. Try Muslims and Jews. Try white people and indigenous people. Who's the wolf? And who's the lamb? Does it even matter? There's just been too much bad blood. There's been too many wrongs committed. There's too much negative history, so many mistakes made that there's no way we can find our way back to each other. There's no way this could ever become a reality. 
So in the same way that learning to walk in this humble posture uh, of Jesus is so radically counterintuitive. And this idea that turning weapons into garden tools is so radically implausible. This metaphor of the wolf and the lamb lying down together is yet one more inconceivable radical reversal of expectations. It just doesn't happen in life, right? It just doesn't. And yet, Isaiah says something else in his prophetic words. And um, I think it's the focus of all of these things. And it's found in chapter 7. He says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Now again, let's sort this out a little bit. This message originally was not intended for you and I. This message was intended for King Ahaz, the king of Judah. Ahaz had refused to ask for a sign that God would protect the city of Jerusalem from a pending attack from uh, Damascus and Samaria. And so Isaiah says, fine, if you're not going to ask for a sign, God himself will give you a sign. A woman, a young woman in the, in the Hebrew, um, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the, the scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures, translates it to virgin, but the original Hebrew word just means a young woman. So a young woman, possibly Hezekiah, uh, the birth, uh, Hezekiah would be the baby that is born, which would be Isaiah's son, or possibly King Ahaz's wife's son, We're not sure who, but he says, this will be the sign. You will have a son, and they are to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And two years later, Damascus and Samaria for those historian, histor, history buffs, are invaded by Assyria, and their potential threat to Jerusalem is gone. God was with Judah. The prophecy comes true. And Isaiah looks at that, and his audience looks at that, Ahaz looks at that and says, wow, Emmanuel, God with us. He was with us. He saved us. He preserved us. Here we are, saved. And they thought, okay, that's a good prophecy. Now, moving on to the next thing. But then... 700 years later, we open the Gospel of Matthew, and we see a second layer of this prophecy being fulfilled, a reappropriation of this same prophecy in the birth of Jesus. Sure, God is with us. He's, he's always been with us. But now, in this much more tangible, immediate sign, God has joined humanity in this humble posture through this baby born in these conditions outside the very city that was spared 700 years earlier. Why does this matter? How does this 2,700 years later make any sense or have any relevance to us today. And this is why. Because the radical reordering of reality that we just read about in Isaiah through these prophetic words was speaking, that he was speaking of is a hopeless reality. It absolutely is a hopeless reality. Those things don't happen. Streams don't flow upward. We don't turn our weapons into tools, right? We don't um, ever see enemies lying down together. None of that happens except if God 
is with us. Amen? Amen. One author writes this. He says, The presence of Emmanuel is the great hope that Advent brings to humanity. In the child of Bethlehem, God enters human history and is present with humanity. And he quotes John, And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. In the child born in Bethlehem, God made himself known to his people. This time, however, the presence was physical, which allowed people to know that through the child of Bethlehem, God was reconciling the world unto himself. So where does this leave us 2,000 years later? Well, friends, we are asked to hold on to this audacious hope of a world being reconciled unto Jesus in spite of signs that are lacking for many of us. We just don't see that happening in the world around us. But this is what we're asked to do. Again, I reference uh, Steve Bell here. He says, The truth of these oracles, these words of Isaiah, these prophetic words, suggest a radical reordering of everything we know. This reordering would require a willingness to relinquish power and prestige. Such relinquishments and their attendant vulnerabilities could only be sustained by an ardent love of God and all God loves and a profound longing for the community of God. That's you and me. The shape and culture of which these oracles suggest. Yet these oracles, when read and understood together, indicate a reality. Listen to this. That we may not realize is already at hand. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you and among you. Talk about the wolf and the lamb lying together. We can never imagine this. Right? That, that doesn't happen. But yet, on uh, Friday, um, Rhonda asked me to go to the store and pick something up for whatever, a cooking class. And uh, so it was, at, it was at lunchtime, and I, was, I had the radio on. And the story was, uh, or the Ontario Today was the uh, call-in talk show across the province. Anyone listen to this on Friday, by the way? Scott did. I know Scott's my CBC boy. Of course he did. I hope you, maybe you heard this story as well. It was just, it was the, the story that was at the right time. I was thinking about this wolf and lamb, thinking like, how do, we, how do we see this? And then this story just comes to me. And I'm like, this is exactly this. Um, there was, the, the, the question that they asked was, um, how did initiating, reaching out to a stranger have an impact on you? That was the question that everyone was talking about on, on, on the radio show. And so as I listened, this lady was sharing a story about the relationship with their neighbor across the street. Did you hear that part? Oh, nice. I get to share it then. So this, this lady um, had a relationship. They had lived in this home for 25 years. And across the street was this elderly couple that were, um, that he, she, they had nicknamed Mr. and Mrs. Grumpy. Mr. Grumpy is what they called them. And that's because in 25 years of living next to these folks, they rarely had any interaction with them at all whatsoever, except when Mr. Grumpy called the bylaw officer on them, which he did three or four times because they were slow to mow their lawn. And so this old man um, often would do that. And in the course of their years uh, living next to each other, they didn't see eye to eye on anything. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't do any of that. And so then um, she's, at, she's explaining what happened. She said, this is a couple in their 80s. And she said, and she's a retired nurse. And so she went to go check on them one day. She had heard they'd gone to the hospital or whatever. So she went to go check on them. She said, what the heck? I'll go say hi. She goes next door. 
says hi, and she notices that they don't have any family or friends close by. So she says, would you mind if I served as your emergency contact? Uh, for, you know, they're getting older, they're fragile, and they said, sure. Um, you know, those kind of things kind of are necessary, and so that happens. And um, so over the next little while, every week, she would check in on them once or twice a week, either with a phone call or just knocking on the door. And she said that interaction, that initial sort of step toward their neighbor that for 25 years had been enemies, um, changed everything. She said this, before he was Mr. Grumpy to us, and now he's just a very sweet man who's made homemade things and brought them over. And I've gotten to know him in a very short time. Where before it was 25 years of every time our grass was long, was Mr. Grumpy going to call bylaw on us? Now it's turned into a very lovely friendship. Isn't that cool? Talk about the lamb and the wolf suddenly lying down together is this maybe just a small glimpse of this counterintuitive, radical way of living that Jesus invites us to hope for. We're all familiar with the conflict in um, the Middle East right now between Palestine and Israel. There is this deep-seated hatred. That's really the only word. A hatred, a disdain that <clears throat> has been developed over literally thousands of years. And that history is complex, it's complicated. And both sides of this narrative, or both sides of this war have bought into this narrative that the only way forward is through guns and bombs and fighting. And yet here we are, two months into the latest conflict, and I think the numbers are like 12 or 13,000, whereas 15,000 Palestinians have been killed. 1,200 Israelites have been killed. And I don't pretend to understand this conflict, and I don't imagine any of us are experts in this in this room. But when I read stories that tell a more hopeful narrative about this utterly depressing situation in our world, I pay attention. And those stories do exist. Um, one story that I, I came across happened um, in, of um, oddly enough of all things with a boy band, and uh, this, this boy band, I don't know how to pronounce the. I mean, it's called And One, but it's, or no, it's not. It's called As One, but it's A S, the number one, and then the word one. So I'm not sure if that's like As One One, or if it's just. What, I assume it's As One. Um, this is a band made up of Jewish and Palestinian guys in their early 20s. And they were about to record their debut album over in Los Angeles when this conflict broke out on October 6th. And they were faced with a decision. Do we keep moving forward with this? Or do we abandon ship and we retreat into our own camps? Which is what most people do. But they opted to stay together and they continued moving forward as a band. And during the recording session, uh, one of the members said this. He said, the toughest moments were during the sessions. I was told about two friends that were killed. Niv was told about friends of his that were killed. A lot of us found out about really awful stuff during that session. Not to mention that now there's a whole war going on. How crazy is it to get hugs from Palestinian friends when my Israeli friends died? 
Moon says. That's our story. Take those weapons that you could have used to kill each other and form them into microphones and recording equipment and make some cool music or boy band music. It's not cool. It's okay. Right? Show that a better way is possible. And people can look at this stuff with cynicism and skepticism, but followers of Jesus are asked to resist that cynicism, to hold on to some, what I would call, naive hope, right? That's what this is. It's naive hope. And we're asked to, like, against all odds, hold on to naive hope because it points to a future reality that has begun to be poured out in our midst even now. Amen? It comes across as naive because there, is this, there are overwhelming examples and it doesn't take any effort to find them of how walking um, in the selfless way of Jesus is not something that we can do. Streams don't flow upward toward the mountain of God. It's naive because weapons being turned into garden tools or recording equipment is guaranteed not to win wars. It can't. There's, it's never been done in the history of humankind. It's naive to hope in predators resisting the opportunity to devour innocent lambs, their innocent prey, because that doesn't happen in nature and it doesn't happen with humans. But the beautiful thing is that even though it's naive, even though this stuff doesn't typically happen, there are signs that it's possible. In fact, it is being revealed in small ways every day. If we have ears to hear and eyes to see. From stories of families finding their way back to each other against all odds. To stories of nations, political states laying down their weapons against one another. To examples of how a selfless, other-centered way of living leads to transformation in us and through our community right here at Grassroots. These things are happening, friends. And you and I are called to not just naively hope for it, but to witness it in our midst and to enact it in our own worlds, our own spheres of influence. This is... Another word from Steve Bell, he says, one of the invitations of Advent is to attend to the heart of things, to come to know that what we need the most, indeed what we profoundly desire, though veiled, is already given as a deposit against what is to come. And here it is. The joy of the Christian is to give witness in faith and deed to what was, what is, and what is to come. Advent reminds us to give witness in faith and in deed to this radical reordering of reality. To not only hold on to this naive hope ourselves, but to embody it, to practice it, and to continue to do so until the fullness of time when all things are reconciled to Jesus. God is with us. And because of that, this audacious hope is no longer naive. It's already being realized in us, around us, through us. We just have to look and see. 
So this morning, I want to close with a benediction. And benedictions are not prayers. And this is something I learned a couple years ago. I don't know why it bugs me, but every time a speaker says, I want to close with a benediction, we stand up and we close our eyes and we pray. But actually, benedictions should, they're basically an, a word of admonition of the Lord to us. And so we should be looking at the person and being like, okay, I'm willing to receive this. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand. And I'm going to just close with this. I invite the band up as well. And so again, maybe having your, eye, your arms open as a way to receive this, I don't know. But here is what I want to say to us this morning. Here's what I feel God has led us to say. As we begin this Christmas season, as we take part in this annual church calendar tradition of lighting this candle, preparing our hearts for the coming king, remembering his birth and looking forward to his return one day. May we all trust that God is at work reconciling all things to himself, even now in the darkness of the world out there, on the news, on our news feeds, as well as the darkness right here in our own hearts and in our own homes. And may you, may we all, find ways to enact this naive hope this season, living in such a way as to continue the radical reordering of things, showing that a better way is possible. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are called to a tall order to trust that you are at work in this world. And yet, we do see signs. We see signs in the world out there. We see signs in our own lives, hopefully, and in this community, that there is a better way of living. That these prophetic words of Isaiah speak to a reality that isn't just some future realization, but that can actually be realized right here and right now through us, through your body. May we take that call seriously, and may that hope that we hold be transformed from naive to a lived reality. Amen.